0: Throughout 2023, CTSI Discovery Radio focused on topics ranging from research and translational science impacting the health of children.
1: In general, heart disease is relatively common. We think occurring in approximately 1% of newborns worldwide.
0: To adults.
1: No one is having that
2: discussion when it comes to menopause. So the onus is on women to educate themselves before they start to
3: go through menopause.
0: To practically anyone.
3: It's a very safe vaccine. I mean, this is one of the things that is fabulous, that we can actually give this
0: vaccine to most everybody. Plus research that's... Beyond cutting-edge research, this is next-generation research. Enjoy this special 2023 year-in-review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Bellmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee Children's Wisconsin, Freightert Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. We kicked off our 2023 year of shows by focusing on a clinical trial that's exploring whether custom-tailoring a person's diet, along with proven traditional treatments, can be a key component in battling pancreatic and other forms of cancer. Dr. Mandana Kamgar is an assistant professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Oncology at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who explained that our body uses food as fuel, but so does cancer. So, the aim of this clinical trial is...
4: The diet in a very precise manner to try to starve the cancer cells, but spare the normal cells in the body. So in other words, the trial aims to make the diet different so that they can reprogram the tumor metabolism, slowing the cancer growth, hoping that this will improve how the cancer responds to the standard treatments of pancreas cancer without adding additional toxicities.
0: And while it's still early in the trial, she told us... This
4: an approach of changing the diet that is so far backed by science, not in humans specifically, but in other models that show that the diet is active against pancreatic cancer. This is just the beginning, there's much more to come.
0: We also heard from Anand Parik, CEO and founder of Faith Therapeutics, the ones designing food to beat pancreatic cancer.
5: What you eat
4: while you have cancer can influence outcomes, not just eating clean or eating lots of protein. There is no way that the universe doesn't have a better truth to give us. We just have to work harder to find it. I am confident that there is a nutritional intervention out there that can help stop every tumor for every patient.
0: Discover a clinical trial utilizing Precision Nutrition on our January show, episode number 105. Having healthy, pain free wrists is easily taken for granted. In February, we learned about a study using MRI technology combined with motion analysis to ensure better diagnoses and treatment of wrist injuries and conditions. Dr. Kevin Koch, Executive Director of the Center for Imaging Research at the Medical College of Wisconsin, shared how MRI technology is key to this study.
5: is the gold standard for advanced orthopedic assessment for this type of a dynamic analysis of the wrist bones. We were able to create some simple and easily digestible dynamic imaging reports of how the carpal bones in the wrist are moving using conventional clinical MRI equipment.
0: MRI kinetic joint profiles and data are compared to a complete motion analysis done on the wrists of study participants by the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Mobility Lab. Dr. Brooke Slavens is the lab's director
4: is a comprehensive analysis measuring and recording movement. For this study in particular, we're looking at movement of the wrist, both in those with wrist pain or wrist instability, and also with healthy individuals to allow us to compare differences between the two. So we're using motion analysis to determine normal movement or abnormal movement patterns of the wrist and the hand.
0: It's all in the wrist as we explore an MRI and motion analysis research study on our February show, episode number 106. Practically everyone who watches TV or is active on social media has seen ads about shingles and the shingles vaccination. In March, we set the record straight on both with the help of a couple of experts, Dr. Mary Beth Graham is Associate Chief and Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Disease at the Medical College of Wisconsin.
3: Shingles is reactivation of infection with varicella zoster virus. The primary infection with varicella zoster virus is chickenpox, and the reactivation is shingles. So both of them are caused by the same virus.
0: Considering how contagious chicken pox is, are shingles equally contagious?
3: If you look at somebody with shingles, in general, it is less contagious than primary chicken pox. When people have chickenpox, they tend to have a lot more virus circulating in their system. People with zoster that's located to a certain skin area, it is in general much less contagious than what we think about with chicken pox.
0: Doctor Ola Shola a Vaughn is an assistant professor of dermatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who told us what the shingles rash and its progression looks like.
6: Shingles starts with that program of pain, then you get
4: the little pinkish red bumps. And then after a couple days, those become vesicles like chickenpox. They're filled with clear fluid. After that, they'll fill up with the yellow fluid instead. A week or two after that, they should crust over. At that point, you're no longer infectious. And then that crusted skin starts to heal, leaving behind light or dark discoloration of the skin.
0: And in addition to the rash, is the pain shingles cause?
4: It's very significant. It has a high impact on the quality of life. Some patients will have minor pain. They get the shingles, it's kind of a minor annoyance. It scabs over, it heals, then go on with their life. Some patients will have very severe pain describe it as burning, stabbing. It hurts when they move. I've even had patients who come in and say, this hurts more than anything I've ever had in my life. So it can be
0: very disabling. But Dr. Graham says the shingles vaccination is both safe and effective.
3: It's a very safe vaccine. It's not a live virus vaccine. I mean, this is one of the things that is fabulous that we can actually give this vaccine to most everybody.
0: We set the record straight on shingles and the shingles vaccination on our March show, episode number 107. Aphasia is a condition that negatively affects a person's ability to speak. In April, we shared innovative research happening right here in our community to treat aphasia. Dr. Sarah Pillay is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology, Division of Neuropsychology at the Medical College of Wisconsin.
6: Aphasia is a really common language disorder that occurs after there is damage to the language network in the brain. The most common cause is stroke on the left side of the brain, but it can happen from other medical conditions, traumatic brain injury, or tumors are pretty common secondary causes of aphasia after stroke.
0: But although it impacts the ability to verbally communicate, Dr. Pillay told us the key to understanding aphasia is...
6: It's really important to keep aphasia and intelligence separate. Aphasia affects our ability to communicate people with aphasia still retain that knowledge that they have acquired over their lifetime. And that is one of the most frustrating things about aphasia.
0: We also heard from Dr. Jeffrey Binder, Vice Chair for Research and Professor, Department of Neurology, and Director of the Language Imaging Laboratory at MCW. Who told us about... Beyond cutting-edge research, this is next-generation research. Brain-computer interface, the idea is to read signals from the brain tissue and have a computer do something with those signals. The device would... Take electrical signals from the brain areas, retrieving the concepts that the person wants to express, and feed those signals into a neural network on a computer The computer can then select the word that names that concept. The computer can then produce the word. It would essentially be speaking the thoughts of the patient on behalf of the patient. We gave a voice and a face to aphasia on our April show, episode number 108. When a child is born with multiple serious chronic health conditions, they may be classified as having medical complexity. In May, we learned about the lifelong challenges faced by children with medical complexity, as well as challenges for their health care providers. Dr. Kay Jane Lee is an associate professor, Department of Pediatrics Division of Complex Care at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and a pediatrician in the Complex Care Program at Children's Wisconsin
6: medical complexity are children who have multiple significant chronic health problems. These issues usually affect more than one organ system. Because of these issues, the children typically have functional limitations, they have high health care needs and healthcare care utilization, and they often have some dependence on medical technology.
0: And we discovered Dr. K. Jane Lee, is also Jane, mother of a daughter with medical complexity.
6: She has dystonic cerebral palsy, so she has a lot of involuntary and uncontrolled movements of her body. She has difficulty making voluntary, intentional movements, so she doesn't sit or stand or walk. She uses a wheelchair, She doesn't talk, but she communicates using an eye gaze-activated communication device. And she is just a joy. She's a really fun kid.
0: Jane shared that her professional role, expertly caring for other parents' medically complex children, didn't initially prepare her for the personal role as the mother of one.
6: It was really hard. I really struggled in the beginning as a physician caring for children who had had brain injuries. I had a very skewed view of what their lives were like. You know, I only cared for them in the ICU when they were critically ill and not doing well. And I envisioned that that's what Josephine's life was gonna be like and what our family's life was gonna be
0: like. However, today...
6: We have a very close bond and she has really strong relationships with a lot of our family and people at school. And I love it, it's a great bond.
0: Hear pediatric and parental perspectives on children with medical complexity on our May Show, episode number 109. A traumatic brain injury, or TBI, can happen to anyone, but due to the nature of their work, TBI are suffered by military personnel and first responders in greater numbers. In June, we heard from Dr. Michael McCrae, Vice Chair of Research, Co-Director of the Neurotrauma Research Center, and Director of the Brain Injury Research Program at the Medical College of Wisconsin
5: brain injury results when there's some mechanical forces that are applied to the head, maybe even resulting in a rapid acceleration, deceleration, or rotation of the head that causes an underlying disruption in normal brain structure, function, and chemistry.
0: Among those often suffering severe TBI are military personnel and first responders, creating the critical need for ongoing research and treatment programs for a
5: group of individuals life to the protection of all Americans. We owe them to ensure their health and safety. There are incredible services, but we also know that there are individuals who choose to pursue their health care outside the Veterans Affairs system here in the United States. And it's important to offer specialized services for military service veterans and first responders experiencing the chronic effects of traumatic brain injury.
0: So a new program is underway. It's called the BRAVE program. BRAVE is an acronym, which...
5: ...stands for Building Resilience Through Action in Veterans and First Responders. The acronym BRAVE perfectly describes the form and the character of service that these first responders and military service veterans have dedicated themselves to for their careers. This is about restoring military service veterans and first responders to their best selves. They're not accustomed to sitting and waiting for things to happen doers.
0: It's a program that aspires to be big and bold.
5: To reach as many veterans and first responders in need as we possibly can. And that's not restricted to just local individuals here in the Milwaukee area. Now, this program will be open to individuals across the country and really across the world who qualify.
0: Discover impacts of TBI among brave veterans and first responders on our June show, episode number 110. Congenital heart disease, or CHD, is the single most common birth defect and the number one cause of birth defect-related deaths among children in the U.S. In July, Dr. Stephanie Handler, a pediatric cardiologist with the Herma Heart Institute at Children's Wisconsin, shared her expert insights on pediatric congenital heart disease
1: disease refers to a group of heart conditions that are present at birth and these conditions affect the structure and function of the heart involving abnormalities in the heart walls, valves or blood vessels. Some are mild in nature and some are moderate to severe in nature. Many children born with congenital heart disease can receive appropriate treatment and some others have more severe disease that cannot be cured and instead we use a series of palliative surgeries to try to adjust to as normal a quality of life as possible.
0: Unfortunately, CHD is probably more common than you may think.
1: Congenital heart disease is relatively common. We think occurring in approximately 1% of newborns worldwide. The incidence is probably similar between countries. In the United States, we typically think that 1 in 100 newborns is born with some type of congenital heart disease.
0: But through ongoing research, future discoveries are hoped to be made, including
1: basic science research that's looking at the genetic mechanisms behind congenital heart disease to see if in the future we could target medical therapy to address that specific cause. We're not
6: really there yet with that type of precision medicine,
1: but I think that's what everyone would hope for in the future, that you could get tailored treatment.
0: We also heard from a mother who shared her personal story of having a son born with congenital heart disease.
1: I had a really quick
4: delivery, but I was in an OR. I had probably 40 people in the room with me, including a group from the NICU, a group from the cardiac ICU from Children's, multiple anesthesiologists, multiple OBGYNs, and then the surgical team from Children's ready to go if Theo needed surgery right then and there
0: turning her experience into helping other children born with them.
4: We're here to shift the paradigm of care so that kids like Theo live longer, healthier lives, not just the number of days, but quality
0: of days. Gain insights on pediatric congenital heart disease on our July show, episode 111. Epilepsy can cause misfires in brain circuitry, manifesting in seizures, but research is leading to better understanding of epilepsy. Our August show features two experts in the field of epileptology. First, we heard from Dr. Sean Liu, Chair of Pediatric Neurosurgery at Children's Wisconsin, and Director of Epilepsy Surgery at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Children's Wisconsin. Hey.
5: About epilepsy is it's kind of the, the spread of bad electrical activity in the brain that causes whatever brain involved with that spread to not function properly. Epilepsy is if you're having more than one seizure in an unprovoked way. So anybody can have a seizure if they have something happen. But if nothing in particular is happening and you're having seizures spontaneously and it happens more than once, then that's epilepsy.
0: Dr. Manoj Raghavan is a professor, Department of Neurology at the Medical College of Wisconsin and director of the Comprehensive Epilepsy Centers at Frederick and Children's Wisconsin.
5: One of the most tantalizing things about epilepsy is that the patient is not always seizing. If you could just preserve that state between seizures, you would have solved the problem. Unfortunately, it is very challenging somehow to preserve that state. So there's a lot about how seizures initiate that we don't understand, and a better understanding of brain network physiology will contribute to trying to prevent seizures, but also guiding future use of these devices. It's an exciting time to be in the field of epileptology because technology has advanced drastically, taking us towards treatment options, less invasive to get the data that you want and make better use of that data using things like artificial intelligence or machine learning.
0: We also heard the life experience of a young woman recently diagnosed with epilepsy
6: to get an EEG where they put all those sticky cords on my head and they had to do a bunch of tests with light. And then they called me and said that there were some abnormal waves on the left side of my brain that they believe potentially had caused a short circuit. And then I seized and they said there is high potential for this to happen again.
0: Learn about living with epilepsy on our August show, episode number 112. Collection of reliable data is essential to research. In September, our show focused on the key role data collection is playing in the creation of two important research databases. First, we heard from Dr. Ashima Singh. Assistant Professor, Research Scientist, and Principal Investigator of the Sickle Cell Data Collection Program at the Medical College of Wisconsin.
6: The main
4: goal of the Sickle Cell Data Collection Program is to understand the epidemiology of sickle cell disease in each of the participating states, study the long-term trends and treatment, health outcomes, and healthcare access for individuals with sickle cell disease. So we want to determine how many people live with sickle cell disease in the United States, establish their health profile, track changes in sickle cell disease outcomes over time, and very importantly, share these data to improve the quality of care, life, and life expectancy of individuals with sickle cell disease.
0: Then we learn more about a massive data collection effort that can be used by researchers for practically any disease. Jenna Coney is Program Operations Manager for the All of Us Milwaukee Research Program.
1: The All of Us Research Program is a historic, longitudinal effort to gather data from one million or more people that live in the United States, and this is to accelerate research and improve our health. Researchers will use this data for a wide range of health studies and their findings
0: Karen Dotson is the director of All of Us Milwaukee, who told us the goals in building this research database are many.
3: Getting people enrolled into the program, but also retaining them into the program. Collection of data and specimens and being able to expand that to a million or more people to be involved with that. We're looking at studies as to scalable capability, looking at how we can move this program forward. Research, access, and impact. This is going to allow for us to establish a diverse global community of at least 10,000 researchers looking at this data. So those are some of the core goals to mobilize this program to the next level.
0: Discover data collection, the roots of research. On our September show, episode number 113. Menopause was once considered taboo to talk about. But on our October show, we did talk about it. First, with Dr. Laura Stryker, clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine.
2: When we talk about menopause, the common definition is 12 months without a menstrual period. The definition I like to use is when your ovaries are no longer producing estrogen. They are out of business, Forever, they will never start producing estrogen again. And so often we hear women say, I'm done with menopause. You are done with menopause when you die because you are never going to start making estrogen again.
0: So she urges women to know and understand that
2: there are solutions to all of these issues both hormonal and non-hormonal. It's so important that women educate themselves and know what their issues are because, quite frankly, it's sad but true that the overwhelming majority of physicians in the United States, even OBGYNs, are not educated as far as the management of menopause.
0: And for women not yet in menopause...
2: This is the time to educate yourself. No one is having that discussion when it comes to menopause. So the onus is on women to educate themselves before they start to go through menopause.
0: We also heard from Dr. Nancy Avis, professor, Department of Social Sciences and Health Policy at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, to learn about the mental health impacts of menopause as well.
6: The important message is the huge variability among women. So some women don't have depressive symptoms, they don't have mood swings, they don't have sleep problems. But some women do. So it's not abnormal to have these, but don't assume, oh, I'm going through menopause. I'm going to have all these symptoms. Your friend, your mother, your sister, what their experience is like is not necessarily what you will experience. So women need to enter it, not necessarily with the expectation that they're going to have all these symptoms. The symptoms are real. They should not be discounted, but
0: you don't know what it's going to be like until you go through it. And even then...
4: Women get older, even though the physical health may
6: start to decline, mental health aspects actually get better with aging, and so women will do well after menopause.
0: It's what women and men need to know about menopause on our October show, episode number 114. In November, we focused on the pituitary gland a pea-sized organ with enormous impact on our overall health. Dr. Adriana Joachmescu is a professor and director of the Pituitary and Adrenal Disease Program at Frederict and the Medical College of Wisconsin, who says, while tiny in size, the pituitary gland's importance is titanic.
4: The pituitary gland is a regulatory of multiple processes, such as growth, metabolism, stress adaptation, reproduction, and more.
0: The pituitary gland achieves all of this
4: by producing essential hormones that target virtually every cell in the body. The pituitary gland is a key part of the endocrine system.
0: In fact, it's often referred to as the master gland of the endocrine system.
4: This name is actually well-deserved because the pituitary gland functions like a command center and sends signals to other endocrine glands in the body.
0: As far as disorders most commonly affecting the pituitary...
4: Tumors are actually the most frequent disorders affecting the pituitary gland in adults. The good thing is these are almost always benign tumors, and these are not rare, but they are benign and mostly small. The specific name for these tumors is pituitary adenoma. They represent about 10 to 15% of intracranial tumors.
0: So does this mean that most disorders affecting the pituitary gland are treatable?
4: The answer to this is fortunately yes. Tumors can be surgically removed by neurosurgeons or certain tumors, such as prolactin tumors, are successfully treated with anti-tumor medication. And these medications act on receptors expressed by the tumor cells. It's like a key that goes into a lock and either locks or unlocks something there, alleviating the manifestations caused by the hormone excess.
0: Discover the pituitary, our mini, mighty master gland, on our November show episode number 115. That's going to wrap up our entire year of shows for this special 2023 year in review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. As always, we thank all of our guests from all of our shows throughout the year. And we especially thank you or listening to and sharing CTSI Discovery Radio throughout this past year and in the year to come. I hope you've discovered something by listening to each of our shows this year. And please plan to join us in 2024 as we bring you another year of shows. Exploring the latest in translational science discoveries, you won't want to miss a single show. Throughout 2024, catch CTSI Discovery Radio on the third Friday of every month at noon. Make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Bellmer wishing you a wonderful holiday season. And here's to a happier, healthier New Year. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio the CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.